Hey everyone out there and thank you for joining me for a late Sunday night edition of the Mark Guy Show. This is episode 27 and I want to hit a little bit about recent news. Obviously the most important news story this week was probably Fidel Castro's death, the reaction to his death, and what's going to happen for Cuba moving forward. So I want to touch on that. I don't want to spend an entire episode talking about that because I think pretty much Everything that needs to be said has already been said, but I do just want to give my opinion and get that out there. Uh, Beyond that, I want to live up to my promise. At the end of the prior episode, I said I was preparing to to do a show about how to talk to progressives and how to get the libertarian message out to progressives, how to win arguments with progressives. I know that the path to converting people isn't necessarily best achieved by winning arguments with those people. But I think by being able to stop them in their tracks, it helps other people around those conversations to be converted to the libertarian message and the libertarian cause and to hopefully come out of a lot of the myths that surround libertarianism. And a lot of people have these preconceived notions in their heads about who libertarians are, what their motives are, and... I think by being able to state your case clearly and by being able to, you can really refute a lot of these leftist arguments. And in this, a lot of these same things can work when talking with conservatives as well. But um, this episode is going to be geared more towards progressives. But a, a lot of their positions can be refuted with the same arguments. So if you can have a sort of playbook about, okay, this is how I can respond and I can win these arguments because it's it's very difficult, if not impossible, for them to be able to refute these particular arguments. And I also want to touch on, and this is going to be brief, but uh, the news story I saw coming out that approximately 60% of people living in New York City uh, are basically living paycheck to paycheck. And if they were to miss their next paycheck, they would likely be homeless. That's the results of of this study. So that fits into what I've been saying. I've talked a lot about New York. I'm from there. I'm not from New York City, but I'm from New York State. And I've talked about how New York is overtaxed. And it's one of the big reasons why people are leaving that area. Uh, People are leaving Western New York, where I'm from, I think for that reason, because of the high property taxes. I think the, the tax environment makes it difficult to start businesses there and it makes jobs more scarce there than elsewhere and then i've come to an area that's relatively low tax north dakota i think generally the midwest is is lower tax than western new york and and the rest of new york state and then how plentiful jobs are where i am i'm not saying that's necessarily representative of the entire midwest but there is a causal relationship there in my opinion and i think that the high tax environment and the nanny state that New York State started to put into place is a big reason why so many people are living this way. Uh, so first, I want to jump into Fidel Castro's death, and I don't want this to be a celebratory analysis by any means. I, I don't think, you know, I don't think the world is a worse place because Fidel Castro is gone. I, I, I think he was a brutal dictator, and he used violence to keep power he enriched himself at the you know at the detriment of the cuban people and just like we've just like every time we've seen communism attempted this is what has happened the people at the very top have used it to consolidate power 
to enrich themselves, their families, and their friends. And then they've used violence in order to suppress any sort of potential revolution or any sort of resistance to that ruler's lead. And you, you see dictators emerging in all of these communist countries. And Cuba's no different. And the people that want to praise Fidel Castro, I, I think of Michael Moore and Sicko. I remember watching that soon after it first came out. Uh, that was back when I was... I, I leaned left wing and I was sympathetic to a lot of Michael Moore's viewpoints and I succumbed I think to the arguments about universal health care being a better system than the free market and, you know a lot of a lot of the arguments that you see today I I believed in those things I, I believed in that this that a single payer you know the government would be able to create efficiencies that companies couldn't I still had an aversion to, you know, the anarchy of the market. And I, I, I've matured quite a bit since then. And I think I've I've learned that those arguments don't really have merit. And actual, you know, actual empiricism does not lead you to those conclusions. And what I was doing was regurgitating a lot of what I heard other people say. And I don't think that the, that the evidence is on that side. So the more that I've learned and the more I've exposed myself to, I think, I, I, I try to do it at this point, too. I try, I try to lead, read a lot of <clears throat> what's going on in the opposition as well. You know, I just read Capital in the 21st Century. That's what I talked about in the previous podcast. But uh, I try to read a lot of, of what the left is saying and what, you know, the neocons are saying. And I, I, I try to expose myself to that. And I tried to do it then, too. And it eventually led me to switch sides. Um, but I remember Michael Moore in that, in that sicko documentary basically talking about how Cuba's healthcare system was so far superior to the United States. And now reading about it more and more, I find that that's entirely misleading. And Cuba does that as a show to tourists so that tourists aren't going home and saying how, how bad Cuba is. But the Cuban people don't have the same access to healthcare that tourists have. And it's all to try to, you know, keep up a facade of, this economy being successful, but the Cuban people are entirely poor and they're willing to make that super dangerous trek to Florida. And they've been willing to do that throughout Castro's entire reign. They're willing to make that trek because of how oppressive the regime is in Cuba. And if things really were as good as the progressives and the leftists in America seem to want to make Cuba sound, people would not be willing to take those kind of risks. You would not be willing to risk your life to leave that system if you know if their standard of living is as high as people seem to want to make it out to be and if Castro was as, was as successful of a ruler as they make him out to be but you know the real issue with Castro is his violence his suppression of of political enemies and of people that are people that say that have said critical things about him that's the worst thing about him, but it seems like the progressives are willing to willing to ignore all that. And what social justice is to them is forced redistribution of wealth. That's what social justice really is to them. At the end of the day, that's what's most important to them. So Jill Stein came out, and she's she's gotten a lot of flack for this, uh, but she came out and called Castro a hero for social justice. He was a Fidel Castro was a symbol of the struggle for justice in the shadow of empire. Presente. And she tweeted that and she's 
like I said, gotten considerable backlash for that, rightfully so. Um, and I, I'm very critical of U.S. foreign policy on this podcast. And I've been in favor of normalizing relations with Cuba for a long time. And that dates back to when I was far to the left. Maybe I was more sympathetic to Cuba than I am now. But I think the best way in order, the best way to wake up the Cuban people and to enable them to improve their standard of living is for them to be able to trade openly with other countries. The more that they're exposed to the benefits of capitalism, the closer we will get to them overthrowing the communist system and to overthrowing a dictatorial system because they will see these are the benefits of capitalism. These are the benefits of free markets. So Donald Trump came out and he actually had a, a, a pretty good statement, I thought, on on Castro. He said, quote, Fidel Castro's legacy is one of firing squads, theft, unimaginable suffering, poverty, and the denial of fundamental human rights. While Cuba remains a t totalitarian island, it is my hope that today marks a move away from the horrors endured for too long and toward a future in which the wonderful Cuban people finally live in the freedom they so richly deserve. Um, and then he said also in his statement, uh, quote, his, his administration, quote, will do all it can to ensure the Cuban people can finally begin their journey toward prosperity and liberty. Um, and then on Twitter, he said, so those things I agree with. I agree with criticizing Castro and his regime for all of those things. So I have no problem with his statement in that sense. But then he said on Twitter, the people of Cuba have struggled too long. We'll reverse Obama's executive orders and concessions toward Cuba until freedoms are restored. And that, that flies in the face of what I said previously, where I would like to see trade opened up between Cuba and the United States. The United States is, it should naturally be Cuba's largest trading partner due to distance. It should be cheap to ship things between the two countries. And like I said before, putting sanctions on Cuba, all that does is hurt the common person in Cuba. And that's not what we want. We want the standard of living for people in Cuba to improve. So by placing sanctions on the regime in Cuba, in effect, you're placing sanctions on the entire country. You're limiting the markets to which the Cuban people have access and you are harming their standard of living. So if, if we really want to take, if we really want to move toward prosperity and liberty in Cuba, we need to have free trade with Cuba. They need to see the benefits that that brings. And I think in so many cases where we, you know, we want to use political sanctions as a way to get other countries to behave the way that we want them to. And I don't think that works. If anything, it helps the regime in power because it, it, it can enable them to, to propagandize it and make it seem like everybody in the world's against us because they're afraid of what we're doing. You know, they're, they're afraid of the communist system in this case. Uh, the, the people in power in Cuba can say, you know, the U.S. is placing these sanctions on us because they're scared of our dominant way of life of spreading to their country. So if anything, I think it strengthens the people in power. Whereas if we actually have the common person in mind in Cuba, what we would want to do is normalize relations as much as possible. We don't have to have diplomatic relationships with the Cuban government necessarily, at least not to the extent that we would have with our allies. But I think just opening up the trade barriers and allowing people to travel freely between the two countries, if Cuba will allow their people to travel to the to the United States, um, 
I think that's the path to prosperity and liberty for the Cuban people who, like Trump said, do deserve this. Uh, I think all people deserve freedom and, and prosperity, of course, but the Cuban people having lived through a dictatorial regime like this, I would, I would love to see great gains made in that nation moving forward and to see Cuba be another place where, or, or be a place where the ideals of liberty can flourish. And obviously that will take time. It won't happen overnight, but I'm, that's what I'm hoping for the future of Cuba. Uh, our good friend, Justin Trudeau, who I've mentioned here and there on this podcast. I, I talk about him probably more in my personal life than I do on on this podcast because my wife is Canadian. So obviously her parents, all of her family members live in Canada. And I try to follow what's going on in Canada, not just because it's close to the United States, but because they'll talk about it. And I want to be able to chime into the conversation and have an opinion about what's going on up there. But Trudeau came out right after Castro's death and released really a horrible statement about Cuba. There's not really another adjective for me to to describe it, but I'll I'll read it here. Quote, it is with deep sorrow that I learned today of the death of Cuba's longest serving president. Fidel Castro was a larger than life leader who served his people for almost half a century. A legendary revolutionary and orator, Mr. Castro made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation. While a controversial figure, both Mr. Castro's supporters and detractors recognized his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people who had a deep and lasting affection for El Comandante. I know my father was very proud to call him a friend and I had the opportunity to meet Fidel when my father passed away. It was also a real honor to meet his three sons and his brother, President Raul Castro, during my recent visit to Cuba. On behalf of all Canadians, Sophie and I offer our deepest condolences to the family, friends, and many, many supporters of Mr. Castro. We join the people of Cuba today in mourning the loss of this remarkable leader. So there's a lot to unpack there, and I don't want to get too much into it because you can find a lot of people analyzing this pretty closely, but think about that last sentence, calling him a, quote, remarkable leader. A guy that used firing squads to suppress any sort of possible seeds of revolution or any sort of resistance to him exercising his power. I'm talking about his his tremendous dedication and love for the Cuban people who had a deep and lasting affection for him. So that was why so many people have been willing to defect and have tried to do anything they can to get out of Cuba to come to the United States. That's why people in Miami, why Cuban Americans in Miami were celebrating in the streets when they found out about Castro's death. Because the people there had had a deep and lasting affection for him. This is just so far removed from reality. Uh, he, he implies, because he's Cuba's longest serving president, I think he's implying there that he's been elected over and over again by the Cuban people when the elections they have had are, are fixed. You know, they're, they're, they're not real elections. It's people afraid for their lives if they were to actually speak out against Castro and to try to oust him from power. He was the one that chose his successor, chose his brother Raul to take over power. Uh, and to, to say that he made significant improvements to the education and health care of his island nation. I think that's ridiculous too. I talked about Michael Moore and Sicko before. Uh, just as one thing that sticks out in my mind about the Cuban healthcare system, I I have seen other people talking about this, and they collected a lot of pictures of 
Cuban hospitals and what the facilities look like for the Cuban people. And they look horrible. You know, it looks like old mental institutions that have sat dormant for decades. You know, that's what these rooms look like. Uh, and if you're talking about significant improvements to the education and healthcare of Cuba, in comparison to what? I mean, no matter what system you have, things should generally improve over 50 years. You shouldn't be taking a step backward over 50 years when you're so close to the United States, a place where think about how much technology in healthcare has, has improved over the last 50 years and, and how much our healthcare as a whole has improved over the last 50 years. Things should improve over that amount of time, but I think they would have improved far more had they embraced free markets in healthcare, had they not had this this communistic system in healthcare, this the socialist healthcare. Uh, obviously, there's there's not a way to quantify that. I haven't seen a study trying to compare, and I don't even know if it's possible to look at that empirically. What would Cuban healthcare have looked like with free markets? I don't think that's possible to study to look back and try to simulate 50 years. But um, I think that is incredibly misleading, um, and they, I saw people trying to say that because the Cuban literacy rate is about the same as the United States or slightly higher, um, that this is evidence that Cuba's education system is fine. Uh, first of all, to rely on statistics from Cuba, we should be inherently distrustful of those things. Um, but then that also doesn't take into account <clears throat> how how badly the outcomes in public schools are in the United States uh, because what we've done is socialize education. Uh, so we've done much the same in education that they have there. So people try to make the implication that the comparison is between a communist education system in Cuba and f a free market in education in the United States when that couldn't be any further from the truth. I mean, it's really, it's a socialist system in Cuba versus a socialist system in the United States with some free market forces operating in particular cities and private schools educating a small percentage of the American population. But overall, the majority, the vast majority of Americans are educated in public schools that are run completely by the federal, state, and local governments. <clears throat> uh, so Trudeau, this is just another thing. I, I, I've been very critical of him. I think he, he reminds me a lot of Obama, his his leanings are very similar, and he likes to say things that sound good, but that don't have real evidence to back them up. And he's he's sympathetic, I think, to this whole social justice warrior movement toward suppression of free speech, toward trying to trying to impose his politics on the rest of us, and that's what probably scares me most about him and a lot of the mistakes have been made under the Obama regime due to those leanings have been made under Trudeau as well. Maybe I'll do an episode at some point really detailing what those things are. I don't think this is the right episode because I do have quite a bit to talk about about uh, progressives and how to talk to them but it's been a concerning regime and I think he's been a he's been a tire fire so far and I think he's going to continue to be a disaster and I think the the Canadian people will eventually lean back the other way next time around. Uh, so I'll, I'll write that down as a, as a potential idea in the future. And I can have my Canadian relatives, my, my wife's family listen to it and have them 
have them criticize it and see if I'm on the money because I, I know they're pretty divided on on both sides of the political spectrum up there too. So that'd be an interesting thing to have to hopefully bring them into the fray of the Mark Guy show. Uh, so moving on, I just said I wanted to talk about my uh, how to talk to progressives show here, uh, and this is the the main focus of this episode. The reason why this is important to me, and I think a lot of the people that listen to podcasts tend to be younger. I think a lot of my listeners are, are younger. It's a lot of my friends or people that my friends have shared it with. Some of my family members, of course, but anybody my age knows that a majority of people are progressives. A, a majority of people our age of, of my peers are progressive. I'm 24 years old. Um, basically, a lot of the things they believe that universal health care is the answer, that taxpayer-funded higher education is feasible, and uh, that the minimum wage needs to be higher. Uh, and it can be very difficult to have conversations with progressives because they believe that they're holding the high ground. So basically what they think is because of the intentions of my position, so the intention of, say, the higher minimum wage, is for people at the low end of the of the wage spectrum earn more. That's the intention of a higher minimum wage. They think that they're that that anybody that opposes them opposes higher wages for people at the low end of the spectrum, which could not be further from the truth. What they don't understand is that they need to look at what the actual results of these policies are. Rather than looking at what at you know, at what the intentions are, you need to look at the results. And Thomas Sowell has done a great job of this. If you've read any of his books, I would recommend them. Maybe I'll post a couple in the notes page because he's probably my favorite author. And that's one of his, one of the big points that he hammers home continuously. And that's where you need to start in these arguments. So if somebody's abdicating something like the higher minimum wage, say, do you honestly believe that I would not like to see people at the low end of the wage spectrum earn more money? Do you honestly think that I hold that position? Does anybody hold that position? At least any decent person, any, any person that isn't sadistic wants everybody to earn more money, all things being equal. And if they say yes, then it's not worth having a conversation with them. So if they say that, yes, I think that you don't want poor people to earn more money, then say... Okay, if that's what you think, I can't have a discussion with you because you're not respecting me as a person. You think that I'm morally unjust. You think that I'm morally corrupt. So we can't have a conversation about this because you're just going to assume time and time again that I'm just trying to justify an immoral position. That's all that you're going to think. But if it's somebody that you, if it's somebody that's respectful that you're having a normal conversation with, they should say, yes, I believe that you know, that you want poorer people to be better off. And so, okay, good. We've started off on a, on a good path to a normal conversation. Then you ask, what evidence do you have that a higher minimum wage actually results in poorer people earning more money? And the burden of proof is on them. So, you know, people throw around that they want a $15 minimum wage. I'm using the minimum wage as an example here, but it can really apply to all those other topics I talked about, you know, universal health care, uh, 
taxpayer-funded higher education, really any of these issues, it's the same path in terms of where the argument goes. But you ask them, what evidence do you have that a higher minimum wage actually results in higher earnings for poor people? And I don't think they'll have any evidence. Uh, there are some studies out there. I've I, I've read the information that's out there. Robert Reich has tried to push this. They they try to push at raising the minimum wage gradually doesn't have really uh, significant job loss effects, which I don't doubt, especially in certain parts of the country. You know, in California, if if you raise the minimum wage from $9 an hour to $11 an hour, how many people are making between $9 and $11 an hour anyways? So there aren't that many jobs in the line of fire there. But that's far different than talking about a state with a seven twenty-five minimum wage raising their minimum wage to $15 an hour, you know, more than doubling that minimum wage. That's completely different. That's not a gradual rise. And there are a lot of people that earn between that 725 minimum wage and $15 an hour. There are a lot of jobs that fall in that range. There aren't many people at all. I believe it's something like 2% of the workforce earns minimum wage, but there are a lot of people in, in that range. Uh, so there are a lot of jobs in the line of fire there, and I have yet to see any sort of empirical evidence that raising the minimum wage that significantly would not have significant job loss effects. It would, it would have to, uh, just based on making the price of something higher, artificially higher than it would be otherwise, makes the consumers of that, uh, of that product less likely to buy it. And, and that's what happens with wages. Two people want to act like labor isn't another, isn't comparable to a product. But think about if, if all of the sudden chicken prices were artificially raised more than double to where they are today. What are you going to do? You're going to go out and look at alternatives. You're probably not going to eat much chicken at all anymore. You might use chicken when you have to, when you have a relative that really loves chicken or that you need chicken as part of your favorite recipe that you want to have for a special occasion. But you're going to start eating a lot more beef. Or maybe you're just going to eat less meat overall. Um, and so, and, and and maybe if you live in this in a certain area, maybe you're gonna start raising your own chickens and not and not buying chickens uh, from from the marketplace because it's so expensive now. Uh, the same thing happens with labor. You you artificially raise the price of labor beyond what it would be in a free market. Uh, employers are going to demand less of that labor, rather than hiring a new person. Maybe they're going to make a capital investment instead or they're going to make more long-term capital investments in order to be able to reduce their labor force because because of this now artificially higher price, you know, we're now they're they're paying double for labor what they were previously. They're going to start looking at what else can we do? How can we make do with the um, you know, with the with the least amount of staff possible. And those kind of things happen. It's just like with the with the chicken example, you would start to see probably premium chicken dominating the market because how many people if say the you know say the price of chicken was uh five dollars a pound previously I, i'm not actually sure what the what the price of chicken is off the top of my head but say it was five dollars a pound previously for lower end 
and then it was eight or nine dollars a pound for premium chicken you know maybe pre-seasoned or, or or whatever anything that makes it you know maybe it was raised in a certain way that that makes it uh that makes it more attractive to the people that love organic food or you know want their chickens to have been to have been raised in a certain way well if you artificially raise the price up to say ten dollars per pound now you're going to see that those premium chickens dominating the market because the the value you're getting back for that chicken is better for that premium price you know say before you were willing to pay eight or nine dollars it's much more palatable to now pay ten dollars per pound for that you know for for that type of chicken rather than now pay ten dollars for the lower end chicken and that's the same thing that happens with labor too you know when you when you raise a price of labor say from 725 an hour to 15 dollars an hour the people that you're trying to help are the lowest skilled people who maybe are chronically stuck at that minimum wage level. But if you raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour, now you make employers make the calculation, okay, I would much rather hire one very productive person, very experienced person, maybe with education, rather than hire two or three people that are just 16 year olds that are just starting on their first jobs or people that maybe have had some some job issues in the past and are looking for a second chance or convicted felons or you know any anybody else that 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 would tend to be cheaper than that more productive employee now it's going to make that more productive employee have really an unfair advantage it's one of the reasons why the minimum wage has been pushed so strongly by unions because they wanted to price out unskilled and lesser skilled competition uh, because imagine if you have your union employee that says one and a half times as productive as an unskilled person, well, if you don't have a minimum wage and now now the employer can possibly hire two unskilled or lesser skilled people for the cost that the union is dictating that one of their employees goes for, then it makes much more sense for the employer to hire two of those lesser skilled people and not hire or, or not keep that other union employee on the payroll because you're getting you know you're getting more production from those two people because that uh that union member is only one and a half times as productive as one of those lesser skilled people are um so i don't want to get too you know too deep into that it was probably longer than i than i should have gone talking about the minimum wage but if you start having this discussion the burden of proof is on them to prove that the minimum wage actually will result in higher wages for the poor um, and higher wages as a whole, because obviously some people will benefit. Some people will retain their jobs and get a raise because the price floor has been artificially raised, but a lot of people will lose their jobs as well. So some people are gaining, some people are losing at the bottom end of the spectrum. And I want to see where's the evidence that poor people are going to be better off under this system. And I apologize for that extended rant on, minimum wage but I think that is representative of how a lot of these discussions go and I think that discussions about many of these topics that progressives hold a strong opinion on I think would follow that same sort of trajectory and you can use those same arguments generally this is a related point but something I, th I think we also need to keep in mind is the point that we need to hammer home when talking to progressives is that their entire argument when it comes to health care or education relies on the assumption that a government-run system 
is better for the worst off among us than free markets are. And so people will basically just say this without any any evidence backing it up. That's why I say this is very related to what I just said, but they will just assume that a government-run system is going to be better for the worst off among us than a free market system would be. And I'm talking about the very bottom of the rung because that's a lot of times the argument they'll go to like, well, you know, these these very poor people don't have access to education or whatever. And they, they assume that once the government runs it, well, now the worst off among us are going to have access. But provide evidence for that for that assertion, for that assumption. That's the assumption on which virtually all of their arguments lie. And I think we need to ask for that evidence because the evidence isn't there, at least what I've seen. I'm open to having my mind change, but I don't think that evidence is there. I think they, they parrot these lines because it sounds good and it sounds plausible. Like I said before, that's why I was drawn to it initially. I think a lot of libertarians come from the left and they liked it because it sounded good. You thought I'm taking the the morally just position. I want to help poor people. I'm talking about poor people, and this is the way to do it. But what I would the mistake I was making is that I was I was equalizing intentions with results, whereas oftentimes intentions are far different than the results that actually come out of a given policy. So if they can prove that assumption, if if they can prove the assumption that a government-run system is better for the worst off among us than free markets are, then their arguments start to hold a lot more validity. Uh, but this should be the first point we hit home, and I haven't seen the evidence for them to back up this assertion. So you should be able to win, and I'm using win in quotes, because it, it's not necessarily about winning the arguments, but it's about proving that, no, I'm not coming at, I'm not coming at my side of the argument because I'm a shill for big business or because I want to help rich people. I believe in my position because I have not seen the evidence that the policies that that you want our government to take on, that you think make the world a better place, I have not seen the arguments that those policies make the world a better place. And free markets, I've talked a lot on this podcast about how they have improved our standards of living. And I talked, I remember I had an entire episode about uh, about computers. Just talking about buying my sister a computer and how far computers have come. And that's purely because of capitalism. That's purely because of free markets. That's not because of government. Um, so there, there's clear evidence in industry after industry after industry of where free markets have helped us. So there's a lot of empirical evidence there. So the default should be free markets. And anything beyond that, needs to be well supported. So the burden of proof is on them to prove otherwise. Um, and are free markets perfect? No, and I've never made the argument that they are perfect. They are imperfect, but they are they they tend to be the best of many imperfect solutions. And that's another one of the big problems with progressive arguments is that they assume that there is a perfect solution. They don't look at trade-offs, and every policy has trade-offs. So if, say, you now want taxpayers to fund higher education, you need to look at, okay, what happens, what investment are we impeding because we're taking this money from taxpayers to fund higher education? What are the downsides of a government-run higher education system? What are the benefits we've had thus far from 
freer markets in education. And I know we don't have anything close to free markets in higher education right now, but compared to the policies that somebody like Jill Stein or Bernie Sanders advocates, our markets are 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 super free compared to what they're advocating. But the way that their argument works is they assume, first of all, they don't talk about, okay, what, what benefits have free markets and, or freer markets in education given us? And what will we lose in that aspect going toward a taxpayer-funded higher education system? They don't talk about that. They only talk about the intended benefits. Um, they don't even talk about what the actual results would be of that policy. But then they don't take it even a step further and look at where, what investments would, would we be impeding because of all of this money now being shifted by the government toward higher education. You know, rather than being shifted toward higher education by actual price signals in the market and people themselves making individual decisions on this is valuable to me, therefore I will spend my money on it. And higher education, just like everything else, is a function of price and is a function of the value that you see yourself receiving from that higher education. So, you know, I believe that higher education for many people is valuable, but for all of us, if higher education costs a million dollars a year, how many of us are going to go to college? Probably zero. Um, if not, you know, maybe, maybe a, you know, a handful of people here and there, kids of billionaires or something where a million dollars doesn't matter. Um, but we're all price sensitive to an extent when it comes to higher education because there is a cost benefit there. And we look at this is the benefit that we think we're going to receive. This is the cost to us on a yearly basis. And a lot of people make the decision that it's worth it to them to go. Uh, so, so what they advocate is rather than allow a system of prices to allocate money toward higher education and to let individuals decide how valuable is higher education to us and how much are we willing to pay and allowing prices to determine that market, which is you know what happens in, in any free market. They want to have bureaucrats figure out this is how much we should be spending. This is how many spots we should have available for anybody that wants to go. Um, and, and that's dangerous. So they don't look at what are the harms of that system. And then, like I said before, I think the ultimate looking at any of the policies that they advocate, healthcare is the same way. Uh, look at what investments are you impeding because of this solution to the problem. But that's one of the big problems with, with them is they have these perfect solutions. Like I said before, they don't understand trade-offs. And it's unfair to have the argument on the basis of free markets, which I said are imperfect. And I think any libertarian would say are imperfect. Nobody would argue that, that it's a perfect system with perfect outcomes whatsoever. But how progressives oftentimes will have this, uh, will oftentimes have this argument is our intended, the intention of this particular program versus the actual results of a free market. So you're looking at an imperfect system in real life, free markets, versus this theoretical perfect solution that is never the case in reality because none of these programs ever do exactly what they intend. There are always unintended consequences, but it's a, it's an apples and oranges comparison. And so when they try to, when they try to make that comparison, when they try to say, well, we're arguing universal health care for all versus a system where 
you know, everybody may not get exactly what they want, where people have to make trade-offs, just like happens in any free market. And obviously, if you're making the if you're making the distinction between those two things, if I have the choice between a system where nobody has to make any trade-offs and everybody can have everything that they want or a free market system where everything is a trade-off, obviously I'm going to pick the first one. But the first the uh, the the first outcome there, the only time that's ever happened is the garden of eden. If you know, if you're if you're religious, that's the only way that that's possible. A utopia like that where everything is completely plentiful, nothing runs out, and you have all the food at your disposal you could possibly want, all the wealth at your disposal that or at your disposal that you could possibly want, all the technologies at your disposal. That's the only place where that kind of system is possible. So that's another thing when you're having these discussions is to make it clear that's not the argument that we're having. Your theoretical perfect system, which has never happened in reality versus free markets that are imperfect. But we need to talk about what are the outcomes and clearly the outcomes are imperfect and don't match up with the intentions. The cases of all these progressive favored programs uh, versus free markets. And the way I like to sum this up is utopia is not an option. I think that's a great way to sum it up. I didn't come up with that, but utopia is not an option. Another important point I want to make uh, when having discussions with progressives, you want it to be a respectful discussion. You don't want it to turn into name-calling or ad hominem attacks or anything personal uh, because I think that's destructive of getting the libertarian message across and it's destructive in terms of just relationships with other people. So I think it's important to make the case that I think that progressives are coming at their positions from a morally just perspective in terms of maybe morally just isn't the right way to put it but they think that what they're advocating will help people they're not they don't have these other intentions of yeah we want to make government bigger so that we can control your entire lives and because we want you know we want some sort of totalitarian system where the government controls everything um i Maybe they want that because they think that would be best, but I think most people are issue-by-issue issue people, and they fall into some of the fallacies I talked about before, thinking that the, the intentions of a, of a particular program are what will actually happen due to that program. But I think making the point that, yes, I think that that you think that your position will help people, and I don't think that you're trying to run my life. I don't think that... I'm not going to call you a statist or I'm not going to call you any other name, um, but I'm going to say this is why this is what my position is. And I hope that you acknowledge that I'm also coming at my position because I think it does the most good for the most people. And I think making that point helps to have a respectful discussion and anybody else around you should hopefully respect you for making that point and for not devolving into name calling. Um, I know I, I forget who said this, but they said that uh, when libertarians have lost an argument, they call the other person a statist. Uh, and I think I think that does hold some truth to it. And I think uh, from what I've seen, progressives do tend to go to that place first. Because I do think, obviously I'm biased, but I do think that the libertarian-leaning message 
uh, has far more truth to it and has evidence backing it up that the, that the progressive positions could only hope to have. But I think having a civil discussion like that is, is very important. And I think it allowed the other person to respect you and your opinions. And I think this is the last bigger point that I have, uh, but the way to, to start a discussion with progressives and a way to, I don't want to say suck them in, because it sounds like you're trying to, you know, set them up for something. But I think the way to have a civil discussion with progressives is to talk about the problems and talk about the problems that they identify and that you identify. And I think on a lot of issues, we identify the same problems. I think if you if you were to ask libertarians about the, the Bernie Sanders campaign and the things that he was identifying, I think a lot of libertarians would say a lot of what he said is true in terms of saying this is a problem and we need to figure out what can we do to resolve this problem. Our solutions are radically different, and I think that Bernie's solutions are scary and, and, and dangerous, but I think a lot of times we identify the same problems. So focusing on that at first. So if, if, if education comes up, uh, I think talking about the student loan issue, I talk about that a lot on this podcast, one of my favorite topics to discuss, I think because of people our age, it's, it's something that affects virtually everybody that you know and everybody entering college now. And it affects so many people in that 18 to 25 or 18 to 30 age bracket. A lot of parents do. It really affects the entire nation, but uh, it, it, it's definitely higher up on the list of priorities for people in that 18 to 25 or 18 to 30 age range. Uh, but you start out by talking with them and saying, yeah, I think the $1.3 trillion in student loan debt is an abomination. I think it's horrible. And I don't want to see people have to go into that kind of debt in order to get a college education. I want college education to be more affordable. And I think progressives would, would, would agree with all of that. They would say, yeah, I, ha I hate the student loan debt. I think college is, is too expensive and we need to have, uh, we need to make radical changes in order to make it either more affordable or free taxpayer funded. This is what, this is what they would say. And, and maybe they would even say we need to either, they'd say we either need to reduce the interest rates on outstanding student loans, or they would say we need to forgive all student loans. Uh, obviously, libertarians would say, would talk differently. But I've had pretty good success talking about this issue and talking about the case for not having the government involved in higher education and how it would be impossible for somebody to go $200,000 in debt to go get a sociology undergraduate degree with a system without government guarantees backing student loans. Without the government involved in the student loan program, it would be impossible for people to ruin their lives to that extent. It would just be completely impossible because no bank would ever give out loans to somebody pursuing that kind of degree that had no chance of paying it back. Uh, and... No bank would do it without implicit government guarantees. You know, a bank maybe still would do it today because government guarantees would be backing that up. There's no way to discharge those loans through bankruptcy. And they know that even if the person never pays never pays back a dime, they're eventually going to get the money back from the government or, you know, through garnishing wages, they will get their money back. Whereas without those implicit government guarantees, they would not be willing to make those kind of loans. And without those loans available that wouldn't be available in a free market 
Um, so without without having those loans available, prices would have to come down to a point where people could either borrow to to be able to pay for college or to where parents and students themselves would actually be able to finance their their children's education. People act like the prices that are being set right now are just the prices for higher education. And if you take away government guarantees, how are poor families possibly going to come up with $40,000 a year in order for their kids to go to college? Well, that's leading us in the wrong direction because prices would not be $40,000 a year for college without government uh, without government guarantees and without uh, taxpayer-funded student loans. It would be impossible. Colleges would have to act more like private companies and less like the cartel, you know, the, the cartels that they act like now. Um, and they would have to figure out, okay, what's our target market? Where can we cut costs? We're, we, we need to slim down our margins. And just like happens in any free market, there would be different niches that would that would come out and you would maybe have colleges that appeal more to poorer people that that want to work you know this would probably be analogous i guess to our community colleges today that would skimp you know skimp on the the big facilities uh that would focus probably almost exclusively on hiring professors and facilitating the classroom schedules Maybe they would it would make far more use of, of online resources because that's cheaper. They wouldn't need to have as much in terms of actual brick and mortar facilities. Uh, you would have these types of, of operations coming about in order to appeal to poorer people, um, and then you would still have probably very similar to the to the big universities today. You know, the, the Harvards would still be able to charge the tuition that they charge today due to their endowment. They'd be able to continue to, to offer heavily subsidized tuition to poor people that are that are qualified to go there um, they would continue to do that they don't need they don't need the government to want to have people from from all levels of the socioeconomic spectrum at their college and really they, they could offer no tuition and their endowment would still continue to grow that's the reason why they why they make money uh, but you would continue to have those universities that probably would appeal more to richer people, at least when when you're thinking about people willing to pay full price. Harvard would not have to bring down its tuitions in a free market, probably. But I think you would see a lot of the second, third, fourth tier universities that would have to figure out where is our niche. And I think you would see a lot of universities figuring out, okay, these are our programs that we do best. We're not going to have all these extra costs in terms of general education programs and trying to have everything on this campus. We're going to focus on what we're good at. We're going to focus on engineering and, um, and chemistry. You know, those are, our, those are our two. That's where we have the best professors. That's where we've had the best success. That's going to be what we focus on at this university. And we're going to allow other universities to find their specializations, just like happens in the free market and other industries. You don't see you don't see 10,000 different uh, competitors to Walmart trying to be an, trying to be a huge uh, store offering everything at low prices. You don't see all different businesses appealing to the same, basically the same types of customers. That does not happen in a free market. And that's because the, the college education system is distorted. Once again, I'm sorry, I keep getting on these on these rants and getting away from the topic at hand. But the important point to make when 
talking with progressives is we identify the same problems. They have their solution. You have your solution. We have our solution. And it's up to you to have a to have a well-supported case for whatever your position is and to be respectful of the other position um, and be willing to kind of dissect it point by point. It's probably beyond the scope of this podcast. We'll talk about actual specific arguments they would give back to these positions. But I think the big points from this are respect the other person's position. Don't, don't resort to ad hominem attacks and Acknowledge that you think that they hold the position that they hold because they think that it will be best for the most people and say that that is also why I hold my position. Second, it's very important to to make the point that utopia is not an option, that everything requires trade-offs and that everything that we need to analyze everything in terms of incentives and constraints to steal Thomas, (laughs) one of Thomas Sowell's big phrases that we need to look at, uh, that we need to analyze trade-offs and we can't look at just the intentions of a given program, but we have to look at what are the actual results. Third, we need to demand evidence. We need to make it clear that the burden of proof is on somebody that wants government to take control of an entire industry. The burden of proof is on them to prove why that would be better. And no, it's it should not work in the sense of let's try it for 20 years and see how it goes and then we'll have evidence because think about all the money that can be thrown away in um, in that type of system and what we see over time is that once these programs are instituted it is so difficult to get them to go away because now you have entrenched special interests surrounding that given program that even if you were to say that let's try it over a trial period that program is going to go on in in perpetuity, essentially, uh, especially in today's system where nothing is declared unconstitutional and where the federal government has so much power at its disposal. And then fourth, we need to acknowledge that we identify a lot of the same problems, progressives and libertarians. And even in certain instances, I think our views do align. A lot of times you can look at... Uh, progressive views on marijuana and you know i'm i'm hesitant some people say they're libertarians only because of their position on marijuana legalization and they don't really look at what the economic implications are of the non-aggression principle and and all of that but uh, i think acknowledging that okay we have overlap on this issue this is why i believe that marijuana should be legal because i don't think that anybody else has the right to tell you what you can or cannot put in your own body. I believe in self-ownership. And you extend it to say that I believe in private property and that's part of self-ownership. That the things that I own are the things that I own are mine and that for somebody else to take those things by force is immoral. And I think that any infringements on on my ability to contract with another person, we both own ourselves. We both have the right to engage in consensual activity with somebody else. If we agree on a contract, nobody else should be able to infringe upon that right. As long as I'm not impo- as long as I'm not aggressing on somebody else. And you can make that case. It's a very coherent, uh, it's a very coherent moral system, and it's it's a very coherent um, system of viewing the world. And I think people can respect that. 
Um, so explaining it that way and saying that we overlap on, on this particular issue, but I think that you are contradicting yourself when you have this position on this issue, this issue, and this other position on this other issue. I think that your position is contradictory, um, and I think that I have the the coherent position, the consistent position. You know, maybe you would say it much more, uh, you know, with with much more nuance when actually having the discussion. But I think that's an important point to make too. Uh, but then just looking at at our overlap in terms of the problems out there and being able to present your your solution or what you think will improve based on whatever your principles are. I'm, I'm obviously talking from a libertarian perspective, but being able to say that uh, this is this is why I believe what I believe and, and, and this is, I think, the solution to that problem because you and I identify the same problem. Listen respectfully to, to their opinion, but then be, be able to kind of dive down into little things that they say and then be able to have discussions about those little points below that big overarching point. Um, so I think those are the four main points I wanted to make about talking to progressives and how I think we can have constructive conversations and get our point out there and uh, to get our positions out there and for, for people to no longer be able to insinuate that libertarians are this radical fringe or that they're shills for big business because I think approaching it that way, you can make it clear that I even if you don't agree with me, my position is based on the belief. First of all, it's based on a, on a consistent set of principles, which I think no other line of thought really has that same kind of coherent, uh, that same kind of consistency across the board. Um, so you can say that I think it, I think it's consistent, and I believe that this system does the most good for the most people. Um, and no longer can you criticize somebody as being a shill for big business when they can explain themselves like that and explain these are the principles that I rest on and this is why the positions that I advocate do the most good for the most people. Now, I would love to hear how consistent your principles are and how your system does the most good for most people, but no longer can you can you insinuate that I'm part of the radical fringe or that I exist to protect the billionaires from other people when it really couldn't be any any further from the truth. So one more thing I wanted to discuss, and uh, I know this is another long episode, but I guess if, I'm, if I just do one a week, it's going to be more like two episodes in one. So maybe you'll have to listen to this over a couple sittings. But I wanted to discuss the story that I saw, and I tweeted out about this, but that 60% of New Yorkers are one paycheck away from homelessness. And I originally saw Abby Martin, who used to work for RT, which is Russia Today, a Russian government-funded uh, news channel and I liked RT I liked watching RT just just because it was completely different from the mainstream media in the United States obviously they have their their biases being funded by the Russian government they're going to have pro-Russian stances on a lot of issues so you know that you're getting biased news but it's it's much more transparent I think than the biases of the mainstream media in the United States so I used to watch her show on occasion she had a show called Breaking the Set and I don't I'm not really sure what she's doing now but I've follow her on social media from those days and she had tweeted this out originally so i'll quote from the zero hedge article because that's where i pulled out that's where i'll i'll link to this because they have a couple links in there to 
um, the original reports. Uh, but Zero Hedge wasn't where I first found out about this. But, quote, nearly 60% of New Yorkers lack the emergency savings necessary to cover at least three months' worth of household expenses, including food, housing, and rent. Uh, and then it's it also goes in to say that particular boroughs have far more uh, far more of this than than other boroughs. So um, Brooklyn, an average of sixty seven percent of families. Uh, well, actually, no. In Brooklyn, it breaks it down by neighborhood. So there are a lot of uh, there were quite a few neighborhoods with like with sixty seven to seventy percent that were in that range and then Manhattan an average of 67% of families in Harlem Washington Heights and Inwood lack necessary savings uh, Queens was a little more closer to the average I guess uh, Staten Island only had 41% of families lacking the funds necessary to cover three months worth of expenses um, the Bronx had the highest percentage so 75% total in the in the Bronx borough um, so this is New York City, obviously. I'm from New York State, like I said before. Um, so I've discussed my issues with New York State. And I think one of the big issues is that New York City and the rest of the state is so different. And you're trying to rule this large state with one state government. It's kind of a, an extension of my criticism of how much power is consolidated in Washington, D.C. But I think when you're trying to, to govern two completely different peoples under one state government... There's a recipe for disaster. New York City dominates the politics of the state. And uh, because of population, it's inherently going to be what happens. Uh, so I've advocated splitting New York State into two states and having, uh, you know, from upstate and west be ruled under under one particular state government and have basically New York City, Long Island be its own state. I don't know if that'll ever happen. I think inertia now we're we're pretty much set with the 50 states and i would be surprised if that ever actually does happen but what happens from new york state is i think the tax burden is far higher on western and central new york and upstate new york than it than it would be absent new york city's influence in new york city heavily taxes its citizens as well you know it's, it's probably it's one of the most heavily taxed places in the united states uh and so the people under the, the people in new york city are under a huge burden because not only are they under the state burden but they're also under the the city tax burden and the new york city government has been very irresponsible uh it's it, it's really become a nanny state one of the reasons why i wouldn't want to live there a lot of a lot of people I graduated with are, are from the New York City area. Um, I went to a state school in New York for undergraduate school, and then I went to Syracuse University for graduate school. So Syracuse University, my graduate program, was far more people from all over the place. It was mostly international students, mostly people from India and China. Uh, but I went to the state school I went to, which was in the Rochester area. A lot of my close friends, a lot of people I graduated with were from Long Island in the New York City area. So a lot of them moved to New York City after the fact. And a lot of people I graduated with at Syracuse as well ended up going to New York City just because it was the closest large city and it made sense. You know, it's about four hours or maybe even a little less, Manhattan at least, from Syracuse. So it made sense for, for people to make that move. But I did not want to do that. I ended up, you know, moving halfway across the country in the other direction. I wanted to be in a smaller city and where I ended up 
Fargo, North Dakota made a lot of sense for me. But I mean, one of the reasons why I didn't want to live in New York City is because of the government intrusion and uh, rent control laws and everything that happens in New York City that helps to contribute to why it's so expensive to live there. So rent control laws, I pointed that out because that's one reason why it's so expensive to find housing, to find an apartment in New York City is because you have huge groups of people and a lot of times it's rich people or you know descendants of rich people who have lived in New York City for generations that have these rent controlled apartments that they're never going to give up because it's so much below uh, below the market rate but you have rent control controlling so many apartments that the that the ones that are not under rent control are more expensive than they would be otherwise because people whereas otherwise when when prices increase you would tend to economize on your living spaces so you may you may decide to move into a smaller apartment say as you get older and your kids move out maybe you would decide to move into a smaller apartment because it's not worth it for me to pay for all the space anymore uh, you may be more likely to live with a roommate uh, kids may be more likely to stay with their parents rather than move out into their own apartment earlier on all these things that people do to economize on living spaces are distorted by rent control laws and then beyond that uh, rent control impedes the development of housing for for regular people and it actually causes more housing to be allocated to the luxury market than otherwise would be because the luxury market isn't uh, never really is dictated by rent control laws or never is affected by by rent control laws so you don't have as much new housing being built that could be subject to rent control laws when those are in effect. So that's one reason why I think it's so expensive to live there. A bigger reason is just because of the heavy tax burden on New York City residents and how big the New York City government is, how big the New York State government is. And that's why this happens. And I, I'm also going to link to an article, or I believe it's 40-something percent of Americans. It was from a study... I don't know if the study was conducted by Bankrate.com or if Bankrate.com reported on it. I don't have the exact details because I don't have it with me at the time. But it was over 40% of Americans would struggle or would not be able to cover a $1,000 expense if it came up. Because they, they, don't have the, they don't have the savings necessary to facilitate that. So they, it would require them to go out and take a loan take a loan out or to put it on a credit card that they wouldn't be able to, to pay off. And that is incredible that 40%, over 40% of people cannot cover a $1,000 expense. That they're living so tight, they're living so much paycheck to paycheck that they cannot finance a $1,000 expense as it comes up. And this is an extension of, of that same thing. And I, I, I think I talked about it on this podcast. I, I definitely remember talking about it. Maybe it just was with people in person. But that I think the real reason for this is how much people are taxed. And, and United States citizens, on average, 30% of their income is taken through taxes. And it makes it that much more difficult to spend. I also was critical of Federal Reserve policy uh, disincentivizing saving by keeping interest rates so low. Uh, it, it, it causes people to allocate less money to savings than they would otherwise. And it makes consumption far more attractive than it would be otherwise. Uh, but I think a, a huge role is played by the tax burden that, that Americans are under. And it's not just rich people that are under a heavy tax burden. It's a lot of, of middle class people as well that are under 
heavy tax burdens and money being taken from them impedes their ability to save for retirement or to build up their savings account. Uh, but I think this is an extension of that in New York City is just an extreme example. And the reason why the percentages are that much higher in New York City is I think because government's distortion there is stronger quite possibly than anywhere else in the entire country. You could probably make an argument for San Francisco um, <clears throat> having heavier government control and and. I don't know about tax burdens in New York City versus San Francisco, but New York City, without a doubt, has one of the highest tax burdens in the entire world. And I know part of that, it's always going to be an expensive place to live just because a lot of people want to live there. And because there's considerable demand for living space there, and it's an attractive place to live, prices are going to be higher there than they are in Buffalo, New York, where I'm from. I mean, that's going to happen regardless of the amount of taxation or or the amount of government control or whatever rent control can be put into place. So I'm not trying to argue that everything would be equal otherwise, but I think the problem is just exacerbated by the types of policies that, that New York City has forced on its citizens. And this is really concerning. I mean, having this many people that close to homelessness and really cons- consistently teetering on the brink of of collapse so once again apologize for a for another long episode but pretty much two in one i'm going on the road for work this week so i'm not sure if i'm going to be able to record another one until next weekend depends really on what comes up i'm going to have my mic with me but it's just harder in a hotel room versus doing it in my spare bedroom at home or you know doing it somewhere in my apartment it's a little bit harder with other guests around me but um, if something significant comes up in the news or something I really want to talk about I'll have one out by the end of this week but probably I'll target Saturday but I hope this is an important episode and it's it should last the test of time or it, it, it should pass the test of time because I think that sort of playbook for having discussions with progressives it's, it's only, to con- only going to continue to be a big part of converting people to libertarianism and getting our message out there. So I appreciate the listen and I will talk to you again soon.